Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to this week's Thursday episode of the Fraudology podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. I had my conversation with Alan Buck a couple of days ago. I have several things that he said, especially a couple of things that he talked about in my head, both for myself as things that I need to be reminded of and also things that I know that just fraud fighters in general need to be reminded of because the inherent qualities and the way we think and the way we approach our jobs and think about things make us really good at fraud fighting, but doesn't always make us the best. In fact, sometimes we can get in our own way and sometimes it doesn't make us the best for the other parts of our job, like communicating and building relationships with other parts of the company or up-leveling to a new position or promotion or just taking another chance with new technology, anything like that. And because I'm so lucky to get to call a lot of you friends and know a lot of you for years, I feel like he touched on a few things that I just wanted to expand on a little bit today and how they relate to us in our roles as well as outside of them too. So a little different than usual, but I think that you'll appreciate this because I often say I don't just talk about fraud. I talk about the fraud fighters too. And it seems to me, at least whenever I hear from a lot of you, it seems like the episodes that you provide the most feedback on and the ones you appreciate the most are usually the ones talking about the fraud fighter side. So that's what we're going to do. But first, I wanted to just circle back on the buzzword bracket. I talked about this on last Thursday's episode. It came out of the conversation I had with a few merchants on the last day of MRC in Vegas in March. And actually, Alan was a part of that as well. And one of the questions I asked them was, what was a buzzword that you heard a lot this week? And some of them, they were buzzwords that they heard from solution providers. Others were words that they kept hearing a lot in sessions. But also, even beyond that conversation, I feel like there's often conversations, just side conversations. It's not like they're serious ones or anything. But among fraud fighters, either on the merchant side or marketplace or fintech, where we will make fun of certain words that often get used, either in articles about the industry or marketing emails and blog articles and all of that. And before I read through the top 16 buzzwords of our industry that were crowdsourced and then voted on by several groups of fraud fighters, I have to say it's not that I want or that we are expecting anyone to change over their website or remove any of these words. It's more of something for fun, right? Because there's some words that I don't actually know what we should use instead. Some of these, I'm like, I, I agree, they're used a lot, but I don't know a replacement term for that. If you think of one on some of these, feel free to let me know, especially a couple of them that I feel like I use only because I don't know how else to explain them. But probably my biggest buzzword on this list, and I'll again, I'll go through with them in just a minute, but if I were voting on the bracket and filling out a bracket, which I guess I could have, but I wanted this to be organic from the industry. 
If I were filling it out, it would definitely be the phrase best in class. I feel like that is so overused and very subjective, considering the fact that solution providers are selling to people who are very rely on data very heavily to tell the story and want to know that something is the best of something quantified, right? Not just we say we're the best, but saying you're the best in class, it doesn't make a ton of sense. What class was that in? Who else was in the class? Who was the teacher? Who was grading you? No one was because you decided yourself that you were best in class. There was no contest or anything else, let alone there are some quadrants and grids and awards and things like that are awarded, but not all of them are objective. That's another conversation for another day, but I very highly recommend that if you're ever looking at a solution and they have several awards on their website, and that's something that makes you think, well, they must have a really good product. Highly recommend looking into those awards and how they're decided. I'm very proud of the fact that the two awards that I personally have weren't ones that I even applied for or knew existed until I was told that I won. And so there was no way for me to pay an entry fee or all kinds of silly tricks that are done. However, I am definitely given a lot or sent a lot of emails saying that Chargelytics Consulting has been recognized as one of the top technology companies in fraud prevention. It's a whole long story. Okay. But at least with those awards, there was some effort put into it. Calling your own solution best in class just doesn't have any value. And actually, I'm quoting Alan a lot today, but I can now say his name now that you guys have met him and he can be on the podcast and all that. But one of my favorite conversations actually happened while we were at MRC. There was a group of us that had a WhatsApp together to coordinate what sessions we were attending or, hey, are you guys seeing this information or what party are you going to tonight or whatever the subject was. And one of the merchants in the group said, hey, has anyone heard of XYZ startup? And people were like, no, not really. And I had, but not in the same context that they were looking for. So I just saw that and put it down or whatever. And someone said, why? What do they do? And the merchant who asked the question said, I don't know. I mean, I got an email, but I got an email from them saying that they have a best in class solution. So I thought I might check it out and with a smiley face, like joking. And Alan replied to everyone and said, I was best in class once. It was gym class. <laughs> so now I can't see the phrase best in class without thinking of Alan being best in gym class. And I was like, huh, maybe that's what the vendor meant. Like maybe their CEO was best in history class in the 10th grade. But anyway, that is something that we often make fun of. That doesn't mean you need to go erase all of your marketing, but might be something to consider. <laughs> so when I asked a lot of fraud fighters to provide suggestions for buzzwords, and I define them as words or terms that you hear often that make your eyes roll or just that you just hear way too often or overused. And so I'm not going to go through the bracket pair-ups. We did this kind of like a March Madness theme. And next year, if this is something that you guys like and, and thought was fun, we'll definitely create it earlier in March. I didn't, I honestly didn't think of it until I think the Elite Eight were already happening. And if nobody knows what I'm talking about in the U.S., college basketball is a big thing. And in the spring, they have a final tournament. And it starts with 64 of the best teams in the country. And then it goes down to 32. And then it goes down to the Sweet 16. And then it goes to the Elite Eight. And the Final Four. And then the big game with two. There are two teams left standing. And then one wins the full championship. It lasts for like three or four weeks. Not every day with games. But it's quite 
significant. And I'm proud to say that my hometown team at least made it to the Elite Eight this year. They've made it to the final game one. But considering the fact that they're a team from a relatively small town in Washington State that's not well known for anything else, uh, and I've known it my whole life, it's kind of cool. So here are the top 16 buzzwords, and I hope that you guys appreciate them. So the first matchup, so to speak, was between threat vector and bad actors. And if you read uh, the article that Frank McKenna wrote using these buzzwords, as well as many others, I actually sent Frank all 42 words that were submitted. So that was really what he used to create the press release and the article for the company that I founded for one day on April 1st, which happens to be April Fool's Day. I talked about it all last Thursday. But in that press release, he said something about eliminating bad actors and that you haven't seen a Steven Seagal movie in a long time, have you? So even though I don't really know another term for bad actors and I understand why it's used, I really can't help but think about people that are actors for their job and they're not good at it. I know that's not what we mean, but I think a lot of us do. The next matchup was fraudster versus best in class. Interestingly enough, I would have obviously picked best in class, but a lot of people picked fraudster to win that one. Next was risk appetite versus low hanging fruit. I think risk appetite, the other term that was on the bigger list was acceptable level of loss. And I guess my point is, it's not that I don't think that there shouldn't be any fraud at all, because clearly, if you have no fraud, then you're going to inherently, that means that you have insulted customers or users or clients, either at the transaction or the account level, because having zero fraud means having not zero customers, but a lot less. So it really is about a balance. But I think what bothers me about those two terms, risk, appetite, and acceptable level of loss, is the companies that kind of just shrug their shoulders, right? And they're like, well, we can write off up to 20 million a year. So we're not really going to do anything until we get past that number. That's what drives me crazy. That's just essentially being complicit or enabling cybercrime. And I don't know about you, but that drives me crazy for many reasons, especially after talking with Ian Mitchell at The Noble and Raul Aguilar at DHS and other people I've had on the podcast too, along with them, we know that cybercrime funds some really gross crimes, though just drives me crazy when there's this lackadaisical approach to it. And low-hanging fruit is one of those that isn't necessarily, it's not at all specific to fraud. It's probably more a tech thing as well as just in general, but I think that it's used a lot. We'll get rid of the low-hanging fruit and then we'll go up higher. The next two matchups were bandwidth versus seamless integration. Again, bandwidth is something that's not specific to fraud, but we definitely, it's said often in a few different contexts. And seamless integration is what's fairly new in the last couple of years. And there certainly are, there's more technology than ever that allows a fairly seamless integration, especially compared to integrations even just a few years ago. But even though this isn't, even though they're talking about the technology integration, don't forget that the security reviews and procurements analysis and legal review and all of that still takes quite a while. And there's not really anything seamless about that. Necessary evils. And so I'll run through the next four games really quickly. So the first one was risk-based decisioning. I think that's more, I don't know, I think that was used a lot more several years ago, but it's still used now. Unprecedented. Uh, that word just drives me crazy in general. 
but I feel like it's overused, not just in fraud, not just in technology, but honestly, in the world in 2023. Honestly, probably for the last five years, we've heard it so many times. No matter what country you're in, COVID alone was unprecedented and everything around it was. But if everything's unprecedented, then nothing is, right? Or does that just mean that everything else is precedented? I don't know. The next one is friendly fraud versus silver bullet. I am guilty of using the term friendly fraud. It's not because I like it. I try hard to say first party fraud whenever I can, but I was literally in the room that decided, hey, this is what we're going to call friendly fraud when fraud chargebacks became a much bigger deal when they were able to be filed for things that were not strictly credit card fraud. So it's just been ingrained in my brain. It's the first word that comes to mind. But I do try hard to consciously say first party fraud whenever I can. And also different companies have different, like these days, different companies have a lot different definitions for the term. So it's almost not even useful because you really have to drill down. What are we talking about? Are we talking about specific chargeback codes? Are we talking about all chargebacks? Are we talking about abuse? Like just all those things. And obviously silver bullet is often used in the term, like in the context of, well, you know, there's no silver bullet, but, or we know there's no silver bullet, but, and then the rest of it is implying, but our company is the closest to that. No, obviously there was a silver bullet for one day. Like I said, on April 1st, 2023, there is no longer a company called that. And I apologize to those people who fell for it, but I also know a lot of you appreciated it. So I'm sorry. And you're welcome. <laughs> The next one was multi-layered approach versus delicate balancing act. Obviously, I do think a multi-layered approach is good, but it can get overused. Also, fighting fraud is a delicate balance act. But do we have to say that all the time? I don't know. And then the last one is disruptor and game changer. And those are similar, but those are also kind of like best in class where it seems like the companies themselves are often calling themselves that. I mean, it's important to have disruptors and game changers. And there are a very small handful of companies that I've referred to as that. And it's not to be hyperbolic. It's because I really do see them as a game changer in the fact that they're providing technology that we've never had before. And therefore, the fraudsters are bad actors. I'm just laughing at myself because what else am I supposed to call them? I don't want to call them threat actors like I, cyber criminals. I don't know. But then it gets confused with are they hackers? Are they committing data breaches or are they committing cyber fraud? I don't know. So please, if you have other terms that you call the other side besides fraudster and bad actor, let me know because I'm kind of at a loss. But if the other side doesn't have any idea how to beat or understand that type of technology or it's really difficult for them to be able to crack it, then to me, that is a disruptor and a game changer. But those are terms, again, that I feel like should be assigned to companies and not assigned by vendor companies. Just my two so last week, I asked that you guys fill out or download the bracket from my LinkedIn post, which I put in the show notes, and fill out your bracket. And I know a, at least one team did this as a team exercise on a Friday meeting, which I just thought was such a fun idea. And I think they did it all individually and then scored them up. And then I asked you to submit them to my assistant so that we could tally up what who the winner was, what the buzziest buzzword in fraud was for 2023. This is not as scientific at all as 
the upcoming Fraudology Benchmarking Survey that's coming out soon that we'll get to talk about the results in the next few weeks. And I can't wait. I got to see the raw data the other day and I'm so excited. But we did tally them up and there will be four of you that we will reach out to hopefully in the next week to give you your option of what type of prize you would like, a digital or a physical one sent to you. You know, kind of depends on where you live or just what's easier for you. But we had a tie for second place with four of them, but we did have a clear winner and that was bad actors. So bad actors is now the buzziest buzzword of the year in this unofficial survey. And then the tie was for friendly fraud, best in class, fraudster, and low-hanging fruit. So I, uh, you know, curious to know what you would think would be the best one, but if you missed it this year and you want to do it next year, let me know. I just, you know, I think that it's fun to have fun in fraud whenever we can. We often have to deal with serious stuff. And if you learn to laugh at yourself, you'll never run out of things to laugh at. If you learn to laugh in your industry, you know, gives you a few opportunities to laugh too. This is kind of a funny transition, but transitioning now to talking about fraud fighters. And Alan gave such good advice last week or on Tuesday, actually, to his peers, right? From a perspective of being in an industry that is similar to online fraud, but different. And organized retail crime, ORC, is a lot more built out than e-commerce fraud. And so they have actual techniques and best practices that are done by everyone. And they have regional groups in addition to national groups and just all those kinds of things and lots of resources and training. And so he came to, as he talked about, he came to e-commerce fraud with that knowledge and he approached it with that perspective. And I think that's valuable. But a lot of the advice that he gave are things that I would say too. <laughs> are they things that I always follow? Not always. Are they things that I'm really glad that I was reminded of in that conversation? Yeah, absolutely. But I think that a big reason why those are things that he felt like they were important to share with the industry, especially as he's gotten to know a lot of people that have been in this industry, you know, over the last few years in his role, I think a big reason why he felt like they're important and why I often will find myself talking about one of these topics with a fraud fighter sometimes, especially when I'm in the mode of fraud therapist, as some of you have referred to me, but it's just I've been there, right? So I can definitely relate. And I am coming up on close to two decades in my career. So there's a lot of lessons I've had to learn the hard way. And just like Alan, I'd much rather share them with anyone in the industry who wants to listen than have you have to go through them too. But as I talk to a lot of merchants and also just, I don't know, I mean, I overanalyze data. So why am I not going to overanalyze myself in the way I think about things? I've kind of just noticed these inherent qualities that the majority of us have that, like I said at the beginning, make us really good at fighting fraud, make us really good at identifying problems and then selecting the right solution and the right strategy for our company. They make us really good at training other people on how to identify fraud. And it's not as simple as if this and this and that. Context really matters. We have to think outside the box. We have to be inherently curious. We have to really look at, be dedicated to keep following the tracks until we have all the pieces of the puzzle, so to speak. But that doesn't, those things don't always make us good at the other parts of our job. So 
what I thought I'd do is I named a few things that I think we're really good at. And then I provided some things that I think that the majority of us who are really good at those that first list kind of need to work on and be a little bit more intentional about because they just don't come naturally to us. And that's okay. What got you to the position that you're in now probably isn't going to be the same skill set or the same things that will get you to that next level, whatever you want it to be. And so that's why it's important to identify the things that we need to work on and then work on them and change. That's something that I think it, I don't know, it's painful and it's uncomfortable to learn lessons, but it's also the best way to learn. And I swear, I'm not trying to have my parent voice here. This is like, these are just as much things that I identify with as I think you will too. So the things that, you know, we're generally all good at is identifying problems by diving into data and understanding context. We can look at the data and we can see the story it tells pretty quickly. Sometimes if you're doing it all the time, whether it's manual review or looking at reporting, you can just train your eyes to see the outliers very quickly. We're also really good at being propelled by curiosity and a natural desire to continually learn. I think what what was it that Alan said something about I don't know he said something really good about learning I know I wrote it down <laughs> guess you have to listen to Tuesday's episode we're also really good at communicating with our peers and if you know you lead a team of fraud analysts or investigators communicating with your direct reports because chances are their brains are similar to you chances are they're able to hold a whole bunch of different data points in their head and. When they talk about an MO, they just list it off. Oh, yeah, this and this. We almost talk our own language sometimes. We understand that. That's why going to conferences like MRC and the Marketplace Risk Summit, which is coming up soon, and others, like FraudCon is in Israel and in person this year, and I wish I could go. Any kind of event, like, that's why it's so nice, because, wow, we all think the same. We all talk the same language, more or less. But that's not always the case in our company. And that's a good thing, by the way. Because I don't think that people who think and care about the same things that we do would be as good at sales or be as good at marketing or be as good at operations. I mean, operations maybe, but or finance. Some of you have come from finance, but not all of us. Having well-honed intuitions and gut instincts, whether that's at a granular level, like with manual review or investigations, or it's more higher level of a view of a problem like diagnosing or understanding the root cause of a systematic or process-related issue and knowing for certain what the best solution is. This is something that I really was reminded or had an aha moment with when I had a conversation with Robert Capps for the podcast, I think, last summer, where we were talking about, you know, communicating with other departments. And he was saying, I think it's hard for those of us who are in fraud or trust and safety because often we're relying on our gut instincts and we know why it's important and we know all that, but we have to use a different language to communicate it to leadership and to other departments to get buy-in and budget and approval and all of those things. And sometimes converting that from, I know in my gut that this is what we need and I can't totally explain why, but this is why, it just can be a challenge to us. It's a gift and it's Really, honestly, I see a huge differentiator between leaders like Alan and others who have embraced that and being able to communicate with leadership and other departments 
in language that they understand, about in reference to things that they care about. Those are the people who often get budget approval for new technology. They're the people who have regular meetings with their marketing department or their sales department or others. Whereas the merchants who are like, why don't they get it? I just don't understand why they don't understand it. They're probably talking our own. It's almost like having our native language and not understanding why someone who doesn't speak that native language or doesn't think the way we do or isn't completely focused on risk all the time, that they don't inherently know why it matters to the rest of the business or why it matters to their piece of the business will get frustrated. Those are the same people who are will either be really frustrated and discouraged or ask, how can anyone get anything done or approved? Or they'll become apathetic and just say, well, every other department doesn't care. So whatever, I'm just over here on my own. And I think that really hope that those of you who understand that if you want that promotion, if you want your company to appreciate you and understand how important you are, kind of have to learn the second language. You have to be able to translate your thoughts and your intuition and your gut into another language. And I know my challenge a lot of times is that I think all the details matter because in fraud, they do. I mean, just a couple small details off. And that's the difference between a really good order or a really good account and a very risky one. But sometimes when I'm speaking to people who aren't in fraud, whether that's a client on the vendor side or a client or prospective client on the merchant side that they don't have a fraud department, they just want someone to fix it or just want someone to tell them, you know, what solution to plug in or whatever it is. Sometimes I struggle with that because I think that all the details matter. And oftentimes I could just give them a summary and they'd probably be much happier. And that's something that I'm continually working on. And then I get on the podcast and I nerd out about details all day. Thank God you guys enjoy listening to that. You know, we're also really good at having a strong sense of justice and knowing what's right. Often we're altruistic, right? We're not selfish. And we'll often have just an immense passion for helping and protecting others. Often it's that passion and that sense of justice that is propelling us. That's our number one goal. That's our number one purpose is to protect our company and our customers and fight with a sense of justice. Number two is usually paying our bills. But I think you can almost always identify the people who have number one differently. And honestly, most of the people in your company, the number one reason why they work and why they do what they do is for the money. There's no shame in that. In fact, as a business owner, sometimes I'm jealous of that. <laughs> but often I'm like, but this company needs help. But this person wants an email back. Yeah, it doesn't directly pay my bills, but I want to help, right? I want to support them. I want to do whatever I can. And I know a lot of you are the same way, but it's also because of that. And this is something that actually made me cry the first time you said it to me, but there's someone who is fairly recently new to fraud, but on the vendor side, but very empathetic and intuitive. And I really think he's a fraud fighter at heart. And he would agree. He actually told me when we last spoke that He's worked in other industries before in his field, whether that's marketing or sales or communications, something like that. But he's never really felt like he's been part of a community and like he's been at home until he found the fraud fighting community. And there's definitely people on the vendor side that 
that do really identify with as fraud fighters and who have those same types of inherent skills and qualities in their personality that they'll stay in fraud the rest of their career. There's other people who might be in sales or marketing or finance or something like that for a fraud provider for a little while, and then they'll move on to another provider of some sort. And that's totally fine. But this friend of mine who you know has been in the fraud industry for about four, four and a half years now, he said, I want to run something by you because I think I've noticed something about fraud fighters, but I don't know if it's right. So of course I'm like, lay it on me. And he said, it seems like everyone is just so passionate and their number one purpose in this job and in this career is to fight for others and to protect others and to do the right thing. And he said, and it seems like, he goes, I haven't talked to many of them about this, but it seems like the most of them, the reason why they fight for that and why they want to protect people online is because at some point in their life, most likely their childhood, they wished that someone protected them and they want to protect their customers and their company the way that they wish they were protected. Not necessarily that they wished somebody protected them on the internet, but just in life. And that hit me and I kind of got choked up because I was like, wow. And then I went through a lot of people that came to mind at first and I was like, yep, that, that checks out. <laughs> and actually he built it out even more. It's actually quite fascinating, but Maybe I'll have him share that sometime or write it out or something. But I just thought that was interesting. And as much as I feel like I get to know and observe and understand people in our industry, sometimes I'm too close to it because I am one. So it was really interesting to hear that perspective. And I think there's some truth to it. Okay, a couple more of who we are. So often we're high achievers. There's no such thing. It's funny, I wrote this before <laughs> going through the bracket and saying what I did, but there's no such thing as acceptable level of loss to true fraud fighters. We will work well over the full-time employment threshold of 40 hours or whatever it is for you in your country a week and on holidays if we think it's necessary or if it's needed. Vacation time, we often see that as selfish and unless we have a family or friends that encourage or enforce it. And I think a lot of us are lucky and blessed with spouses and good friends and partners who pretty much have to take our laptop away and turn off our Wi-Fi access on our phones just to relax. It's like this purpose, this passion, something deeper. It's not just a job. It's never, fighting fraud is never just a job if you're a true fraud fighter. There definitely are fraud professionals, people who work in fraud, maybe on the merchant side, maybe on the fintech side, on the marketplace side, or on the vendor side where they work in fraud, but they don't have the same makeup as everyone else. And we often see them compensating for that in different ways. But again, I studied sociology in college. Can you tell? But I'm not going down that road. We're often impatient. But to us, that's a good thing. When we know that our company is million, losing millions of dollars, we know that the sooner it's resolved or addressed, the sooner our company and our customers are protected, the sooner that we're losing less money, the sooner that cyber criminals aren't profiting off of our company to commit other crimes. There's been a few times in my career that I've been extremely impatient. And it usually is because I first start out in a job and I just want to hit the ground running, right? I just want to do the best job I can because, oh my gosh, you guys are losing $30 million a year. And I know what needs to put in place and I know all the work that needs to go into it. And it's going to take a couple months. So I want to hit the ground running. But in a lot of cases, whether it was for a client or a full-time employer, 
the rest of the company was like, whoa, 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 slow down, lady. And took my impatience and my desire to solve this problem as a bad thing. And I felt, or as an egotistical thing. And I felt, okay, I feel like a fraud, like, well, not, well, I am a fraud fighter, but I feel like a firefighter when I drive down the road and I see a fire, I see the smoke, I see some flames and I know how to fix it. But I have to now give a PowerPoint of all these different reasons for, you know, to justify what needs to fight the fire and how big is the fire and how much can we reduce the damage of the fire and blah, 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 before I can get the right tools. And to me, that's really frustrating. But I've learned over time that when you come in hot, sometimes that's not a good thing. Nobody else seems to have that same sense of urgency. And while it doesn't make sense, it just doesn't compute to a lot of us. We sometimes have to slow down for the greater good. It's a marathon. It's not a sprint. And like I said, a lot of us are risk adverse as well, right? Like that's our job to identify risks and protect our company. There's truth to the saying, but there is some truth to the saying of no risk and no reward. And especially when it comes to changing processes and changing vendors. And Alan really spoke to that too, right? There's often a lot of fear in that. Well, if we switch vendors and we're not going to have as much manual review, am I going to have to cut my team? Am I not going to be useful anymore? And that's not true. You know, he painted the picture of where he is now and it's quite nice. Like I said on the intro the other day, I really wish we could use statistic and numbers just to explain how big of a difference it was. But more than anything, it was a huge difference in their mental health for the whole team. They were no longer feeling like they were constantly behind and it would be fairly normal to have some orders sit in the queue for 48 hours before they could even be looked at by a human. They went from that to being able to scale and having holidays and not be so stressed out because they had a solution that was able to scale with them, that was able to go with the ebbs and the flows without staffing changes. And they were able to keep the staff that they had for quite a long time until there were oftentimes there's other issues within a company that can require a reduction in force. but. It wasn't because of the fraud tool, because there's always new challenges. There's always new rocks to pick up and look underneath and see, you know, what to do and how to protect your company and save more money. We'll either save it or recover it. I think that we need to look at that. I actually had a much longer list on this one as well as the next one. So I broke it up into this episode's more on how we approach our jobs, how we approach the people within our company and that piece. And then in an upcoming Thursday episode, I'm going to spend more time on the personal development side, the stuff that we, we get in our own ways when it comes to advocating for ourselves to get a promotion or bragging about ourselves. Like to us, it seems, oh, I don't want to be that person. But at the same time, you can't expect everyone in your company to know exactly what you've done or that it's good, right? They don't know, especially if you're the first person in your position, which a lot of times that's the case. They don't have a benchmark, right? They don't know that you're doing really well or not doing well or anything like that. That can be a double-edged sword in some cases, but for the most part, for us high achievers, it's you don't know how good you have it. And then that goes into salary and everything else. And I think you guys will be really excited about the fraud benchmarking survey from Fraudology and Forder because there's some information in there that I think is going to really help you. And I cannot wait to share that part. It's something that I have been hoping to get into a survey that I worked on for over 10 years. But I don't want to skip ahead at all or steal any of our thunder once uh, 
Shoshana finishes writing the report. And once we have that all together, then we'll do at least one episode on the data and we're going to geek out hard and you guys will too. And the whole purpose of that survey was to help you do your job better, to help you be able to have benchmarks to share with your leadership, either to say, hey, we can improve in this area. Look where our peers are or say, hey, look at how good we are. Like, where's my raise? I'm kidding, but not kidding at the same time. So like I said, there's a lot of things that I think that make us really good fraud fighters that just are a lot harder for us to do the other parts of our job. I think I said that a few times. So here's kind of, you know, the first one that I just, I didn't really put them in order, but here's some advice based on those qualities. And a lot of it's similar to what Alan said, don't be afraid to fail. And I don't know if Alan said this quote on the episode, but in his email signature that he's had at Bed Bath & Beyond, and I've noticed this before, underneath his name and his contact information, it says, through failure, we learn to succeed. And I have been, I joke that I'm a recovering perfectionist, but if I'm being honest, I am still a perfectionist and I've been learning a lot about it lately. And it's tied to like childhood stuff and we're not getting into a therapy lesson or session for Carice. But what I've realized is that perfectionism is a coping mechanism, often for fear that we're afraid we're going to fail. And maybe sometime in our life when we weren't perfect, we felt like we weren't safe or we were judged or something bad happened. And so we feel like we constantly have to do that. But I could honestly lift up, list off at least 10 things that I've wanted to do in my business that I know the industry needs and that I know would be successful financially as well as everything else that I've held myself back from in different ways. And sometimes it's, you know, as challenging as having a really great call with a prospective client and knowing I want to work with them and them basically saying they want to work with me. And then a bunch of stuff comes up and I just first it's, oh, I don't have time. And then I just completely forget about doing the next step. And that's embarrassing. I never want to ghost anyone. I never want to, you know, I always want to go above and beyond. But part of it is for the longest time, I was just prioritizing my current clients. When you work for yourself, you got to do two things at once. You've got to prioritize your current clients, but you also have to be getting new clients. So, I mean, it certainly isn't about me, but just to say that I've learned that my fear of failure has held me back a lot. And it's probably been a disservice to my industry because I know there are things like F4, like fearless female fraud fighters. We had two amazing annual retreats and my goal for forever, and it still is in a way, I've just, I don't know, almost given up because I just get so stuck in it. But I want to have a membership group where women can meet with each other and have mentorships. And I have it all up in my head and I have a business model and everything. And I know we could build it out, but there's so many other pieces of my business, whether it's the podcast or others that I get distracted by. But when I really think about why F4 hasn't happened yet this year, it's because of my fear of failure. It's because I don't want to let anyone down. But here's the thing, me holding myself back and being afraid of failure has meant that the 80 women that attended F4 last year haven't gotten to attend this year. And I know that the last two years have been pivotal in their careers. So I'm saying this as much for me, obviously, as I'm saying for you, but what is at risk when you hold yourself back? If you're afraid of failure, what's not happening because you aren't taking that chance? Are you not spending more time with your kids? Are you not 
earning enough money for that family vacation you've always wanted? Is your company not having the best solution in place because you're worried that what if I pick the wrong solution and then my company's gonna blame me and it's gonna be bad? Those are all things that I that I struggle with, but that I challenge you guys on, right? Like I've but really honestly, after some of the examples that Alan gave the other day, I started to think about too that like the things that I've done that I consider failures that I actually tried and did, they provided other things. They provided other lessons or I met new people or I learned something that, okay, I'm not going to do that next time or, okay, I'm going to make sure this happens next time. So is it really a failure if you learn something? And I know for me anyways, <laughs> and my grandmother used to say that I went to the school of hard knocks because we all know if you listen to, I don't know, episode I don't know what it was it was like episode five and now we're at episode 185 or something like that but you know you know that I dropped out of college and that was something that I was really ashamed of for a long time but I definitely was a student of the school of hard knocks and learning and for those of us that love to learn <laughs> there's no better way to learn than to try and if you fail you'll learn even more than if you succeed it's not that I'm trying I will never pretend to be a personal development person or a self-help guru or anything like that. These are just things that I've learned along the way and recognized in myself and often have recognized in my peers that I thought would just be helpful to build off of some of the advice that Alan gave on Tuesday. All right, I'm going to share a few more things that I feel like a lot of us can learn and grow in. So one is to learn how to communicate with people who don't think like we do and don't care about the same things as you do. You know, we're driven by gut instincts and making an impact while other people in your life and in your company or, you know, that you interview with are not. They're driven by data and facts and, you know, spreadsheets and pretty graphs and slides and pictures and all that. And oftentimes they're driven by their paycheck or their bonus or their metrics or whatever's going to get them to the next level. That's number one and not impact. And so it just makes a difference in how they approach life and how they approach their job. Like I said, there's nothing wrong with that. In some ways, I'm jealous. Be more patient. And that's, I think I talked a little bit about this just a few minutes ago, but this one's hard, right? They all are, but this one was especially challenging for me. Like I said, when I would come into a couple situations where I would have discovery calls and they were just like, wow, we are really drowning. We are bleeding. It's so bad. And you come in and I just want to know, okay, I don't even care where the coffee machine is, right? Just show me. Where's the data? What do I do? How do I do this? And oftentimes they see that as being egotistical. And wow, she didn't even stop and take us out or go out to lunch or didn't ask us for help or didn't act dumb for the first that That job was not good at all. But that had more to do with gender than anything else. But I was informed that one of the reasons why a team had a hard time with me was because I came in hot. And what they said was, you really should have acted dumb for the first two months and let them teach you everything. And I was like, but I knew everything. And they were the same people responsible for your company losing $60 million a year. You guys hired me as an expert in a higher role. I wasn't mean to anyone. And I certainly wasn't, why didn't you do this? It was more like, hey, have you thought about this? What about that? But apparently that was offensive because I was supposed to act like I didn't know anything for the first two months, which now I'm like, I just can't do that. But I can slow down. 
And I can be a little more patient and try to go at the speed that the business wants to go at because it is a marathon. And if you come in too hot, you won't be able to have the relationships that you need with other teams and your leadership to get more things done and to actually make an impact and build your credibility. When it comes to relationship building and earning their trust, like Alan said so well, like you need to start first. You need to learn about their job, their role, what their goals are, what motivates them, what do they care about most? Is it metrics or goals or is it qualifying for the next promotion? You know, what and then how can you help them do that? Is there special or specific data that you have on your side? Or for instance, if it's the customer care manager or the call center manager and they are really struggling with call times or they're struggling with too many calls in the queue and just call volumes. Maybe you can say, hey, we're taking a look at how we can help customers rescue their own orders so that they don't have to call in. So if a good customer was declined due to fraud, we can put them through an automated process to give us more information to reduce your call times. Or maybe it's, hey, I'd love to understand and have some metrics around what are the fraud-related calls that you're getting? What are the most common? How can I help you with that? Oh, you're going to take 300 calls out of my call center for a week? Okay, wow, that's going to build a relationship. And the thing that I think is hardest for all of us in fraud is there will always be times where we will advise someone of something or we'll say, oh, this is what's going to happen, whether it's for a new marketing campaign or a new business model or anything else. And when that happens, because they didn't listen to us or didn't do what we said or whatever that was, we, this is hard. And I know this is hard for a lot of us, but we can't say I told you so out loud because that will, that will burn bridges. That's not a team player. It's, we want to say that so badly because please just listen to me the next time. Have I earned my credibility yet? But chances are they'll remember and chance it. But it's also about your delivery, right? If you say you have to do it this way, or if you're saying no to everything, they're not going to listen to you anymore. That's a good way to not get invited to meetings anymore either. So it's really about using that improv trick of yes and, but instead it's yes and can we, but can we do this or that? Or maybe it's yes, but yes, I think that marketing idea is brilliant. Could attract a lot of fake users. But hey, could we just add this extra verification to make sure? Because I want to make sure that the customers that you're paying for that customer acquisition fee, if you're talking to marketing, I don't want that to be a waste. And we've noticed in the past that some abusers and fraudsters, for lack of a better term, I think I'd rather say fraudster than bad actor, even though fraudsters so folksy, we've noticed that this can attract a lot of people to abuse the system to get their promotion. So can we add an extra layer of verification or can we make it so they can only use one promotional code at a time or that they have to make a purchase over X to do that? Or if they get bonus dollars after a purchase that they can't use that right away because if it's fraud, then they'll, if they've still been given bonus bucks, they'll go spend those. Things like that, right? Not saying no outright, even though that's often our instinct because we're risk adverse and because we just want to protect the company and that's our directive and that's our purpose in life. But learning how to pick your battles is very important. Prioritizing what you care about. You know, maybe you'll say yes to this thing because it's not going to be as bad as the next thing that's asked or proposed. And especially as tech companies and fintech and all the companies in the space that, you know, 
all of you work for, especially as the economy isn't doing as well as it was a year or two years ago, there's often a lot of crazy harebrained ideas that can come out of different departments. And so having the credibility plus the way to communicate it and not say no all the time and instead think of solutions on how you can compromise and show them that your goal is also to have lots of sales. You know that the good sales are the ones that pay your paycheck. You know that the good accounts are the ones who contribute to your stock and all of that. But, you know, meeting them halfway and understanding that just because they think differently than us and they have different goals doesn't mean that they're against you. It just means that you're going to have to be the bigger person and make that compromise first, because I don't know of any departments that are like, wow, I really need to figure out how to communicate better with my fraud manager. There's probably some specific situations, but not common. But for us, we often struggle with this because we think differently than the other team. A lot of us have ADHD, myself very much included, as we know from my tangents and other things. But at the same time, that ADHD helps me remember a lot of really random things. And it helps me like micro focus on something and really dive into the data and understand it in a way that no one else can. And remember those tiny little data points all over the place that make up one single MO. And then remember that for 20 different MOs for 10 different types of companies. I don't know how my brain remembers it. I can barely remember where I put my keys in the morning, but somehow I can remember those things. And so I think that while there's really good things about the way we think and the way we approach life, that doesn't mean that that's the only way to do it. And that's really what, you know, I, what I wanted to share and just kind of add to what Alan said on Tuesday. He really provided a lot of life advice. And I think sometimes it can sound annoying or people can roll their eyes when they hear someone who has essentially just summited a mountain. They've essentially summited a mountain and they're at the top going, wow, this is so incredible. I did not think this was going to happen two years ago. I remember where our company was, where our metrics were, where our dysfunction was, where just all those things and we weren't productive and we were just really spinning around and chasing our tail rather than moving forward. And now we're in a such better place. But for people who aren't there, they can be at the bottom going, huh, must be nice to be at the top of that mountain. Like assuming that they took a chairlift or something. Oh, no, no, no. It usually means tons and tons of small steps. It means a lot of humility and not saying I told you so when you really want to and making the first move and helping people first and not and understanding that they that fraud doesn't come inherent to them. So often you have to start with explaining what your job is and why you do it and how you measure it and what you have access to. Having a standard PowerPoint like that when you first start or for new employees can be really helpful depending on your role and your company. I know that that's something that Haley Wyndham does, and she talked about it in her episode a few months ago, and I thought it was brilliant where, you know, anytime there's a new group of employees, she has a slide deck that she shows them that explains what the fraud department does and how they can help her, but how she can help them too. And I think that just creates such a good environment. And I promise, even though the first like year or two will feel uncomfortable and like you're kissing butts that you don't want to and all of that, the outcomes are immeasurable. And I've seen them time and time again. And like I said before, there's just such a clear delineation between the people who stretch themselves out of their comfort zone and 
learn ways to navigate working with other departments and taking chances on new technology and embracing that and always wanting to improve and always wanting to find new areas to improve and get better. And then learning how to explain what you've done to your leadership so that they know how much value you have to the company. Those are skills that will take you a very long way. Those are also the people who are often up-leveling every two to three years, whether it's through an internal promotion or they're being hired for a higher role, usually a much higher paycheck at another company. And that's, I wish that companies understood just how much value they have and domain expertise their employees and fraud have. We're still working on pay equity within our, our industry. And there's just a lot of things that are all over the place. So sometimes people have to start somewhere new, but they're able to. And they're able to grow and succeed in a new environment. All right. I am leaving it there. I hope this wasn't too cheesy. I mean, I really would. If you were like, can you just stick to talking about fraud tactics and methods and MOs? Let me know. Like sometimes just like how we, you know, learn more from our failures than the things that are come easy or work really fast. I also learn from negative feedback and I never want anyone. I mean. No, granted, do I learn when people just talk crap or say things that aren't constructive? No. But if you provide feedback like, hey, I'd rather hear you talk about this or, hey, I really am looking forward to when you talk about, you know, how we can be better at increasing our confidence and helping ourselves get promoted or get a new job or be ready for that next job or feel qualified to do that next step then let me know because that will probably encourage me to record it sooner rather than later. All right, guys, I think that last week I said that Diana was going to be my guest this week. I meant to mention this on Tuesday and I think I forgot, but she will be the guest on next week on refund fraud in retail or refund claims fraud and sneak peek. We've already recorded the first episode and I think it's really good. So I I hope you're subscribed so that you get an alert once that episode is out and I'll talk to you next week. again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.